Well, okay. Well, come on back, and uh, we're going to jump into the third chapter of Jonah, and uh, we're trying to distinguish all the minor prophets. Somebody yell out, how many minor prophets are there? Right, and how many major prophets? Four, so 16, right? And so uh, you got it. And why is it major and why is it minor? Well, major means it's longer, that's all. It doesn't mean it's more important. Minor meaning it has less chapters, that's all. And we're going through the minor uh, prophets and uh, we're in the book of Jonah. But before I begin, there was one other announcement and this is this. Uh, Here it is. Uh, Sarah needs some help throwing a couple things away into the dumpster tonight. If anybody can help right after the service. She'll let you know, right? It's the, because the dumpster comes on Saturday, and if we could get them in now, that'd be good, right? Or Friday, I don't know when it comes. But anyway, uh, that's that. Man, we had such an amazing time at the men's conference. We went to the East Coast Pastors Conference. I'd say, I don't know, what would you say, 1,500, 2,000 men, uh, just praising the Lord, being poured into. The first thing that we did when we uh, got there on uh, Monday morning is our wonderful friend here, brother John Kennedy, got us an appointment to go into the really the worst part of Philadelphia. And I have to tell you, I can't imagine there's any more of a more, I mean, it's it's like third world country times 10. Uh, you know, when you go to an, well, anyway, it was just a really rough part of uh, uh, Philadelphia. And we we're able to go into a ministry called the Rock Ministry in this worst part of Philadelphia. And I'm going to tell you, I wasn't prepared for what I saw. I mean, people shooting up right in front of you, needles everywhere. Uh, people, I mean, it looked like we were in zombie land. And I'm not saying that in a making fun way. It was very sad. But there was this ministry that uh, grew up there out of boxing there's a boxing academy that started there, and it's branched out into a wellness center and a, uh, uh, this, this uh, and, and all kinds of different uh, ministries up and down the street as people have been giving this ministry where or uh, uh, property. And the one that touched me uh, a lot, I know this sounds funny, but they had this one uh, office across the street from the main ministry, and there were people sitting there, just a little office. There were four or five people sitting there ready to welcome anybody who would come through the door wanting to get clean. And the ministry was immediately taking down any barrier to these people to get them into a Christian program. And so you're talking, there was an EMT in there. There was a social worker in there. There were people, I think, that dealt with insurance. I don't know exactly what they all did, but it was right there. And um, that had a great impact on me. And I think most of the guys who uh, attended with us and so that was a real blessing to see, I mean, if you can say it that way, but it is because in the middle of, I'm telling you folks, it's the darkest place I've ever been to, uh, there was the light of Christ right up and down the street. I mean, amazing. It was incredible, right in the middle of the hardest place that I've ever been to. So that was wonderful. And then I want to tell you another little story Uh, from the conference, there was this one guy who spoke, and the funny part about it was he wasn't a pastor, he wasn't a speaker, here's what he was, he's a UPS truck driver. And he's uh, a fellow that lives right on the border in uh, Texas, and uh, he doesn't get into the the debate about, you know, coming across the border, nothing like that. This man, without any funds whatsoever, or asking for any funds, distributed last year 169,000 Bibles to people he was witnessing to. Now, wait a minute. Now, watch this. And he works 55 hours a week. And uh, he is apparently, this is what he said, Harper Collins's number one client. And they give him deep discounts. And um, he was a man who just uh, sort of stumbled uh, on to the teaching of Pastor Joe Foch at the Calvary Chapel, Philly. Really got built up in the Lord, and uh, he said many things, but one thing he said which really stood out to me, and guys, correct me if I say it wrong, uh, nothing wrong with doing outreaches, but don't think of doing outreaches. Make your life an entire outreach. Everything you do, everywhere you go, just share the gospel, and that's what this guy would do. He would 
deliver packages. He delivers packages with a Bible under his arm. When he stops at the gas station, if he's going back to use the restroom or something, Bibles come with him. If he goes in to buy a piece of candy or a drink or something, Bibles come with him. And um, he told some amazing stories, but uh, he, he was a man who stuttered real bad, like stuttered real bad, <laughs> right? But when he got up here and he was speaking to 2,000 men about what the Lord was doing, basically his stuttering went away. It was incredible. And then he told us, and he, and he just was so humble and so filled up with the Lord and so rooted and grounded in God's love that the stuttering didn't bother him. And uh, he would just go and talk and chat with people. And it was just, it was, it was powerful to see. And there were so many other great stories. Uh, if you like, we could tell you about them till forever, but uh, we won't do that. Uh, but uh, what a powerful time. So pray for the men of the church and uh, some exciting opportunities and things that the Lord's doing in their lives. And it was really a blessing to be with them. Ask them about the goats. We had goats at our house and they kept bothering us every time we got out of the car. <laughs> we were out in the country sort of. So uh, we had four goats that were really bothersome, but fun too. So especially ask Brad when he's here next, okay? Well, we're in Jonah. We're in the third chapter, and uh, we're in the place of, of this uh, around uh, sometime between 790 and 750 B.C. That's when, that's when uh, Jonah is doing his ministry here in this book. But remember, in 2 Kings 14, we encounter... Jonah one more time or one time prior and what we encounter is Jonah going up to the king of Israel Jeroboam the second Jeroboam the second was not a good king of Israel but in second Kings 14 apparently God used Jonah to prophesy to an evil king of Israel that he that Israel's borders were going to be expanded Okay, and that prophecy came true. Uh, Israel uh, uh, got some got some more land, and so then you fast forward into the book of Jonah, and it's the only other place that you see Jonah in the Bible, Second Kings fourteen, and then his book. So you got to start thinking, what must Jonah have been like? Well, uh, man, I'm a I'm a prophet that's called to speak to the kings and uh, royal people of Israel and Judah. But here I am, and I, I've done this before, and I know what I'm doing. And now uh, I'm all of a sudden getting a word from the Lord. And here it comes in verse 1. It says, now the word of the Lord. Can you imagine Jonah? Here it comes again. I'm going to be into the royal palace, or I'm going to be in some nice place where I'm going to go in and I'm going to tell people a kind word or a wonderful word and it's going to make them happy. And all of a sudden, the Lord says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh. Can you imagine? That would be like calling the Christians in the Middle East to go witness to ISIS. These were the most brutal, barbaric people or kingdom of the time. They skinned their enemies alive just for fun, and they had no remorse about it. And when they paraded people around, they would strip them naked and stick fish hooks up through their chin and tie them to each other or in their mouths or in their lips. And that way they would be very ginger when they were walking, and it would be a point of humiliation. I mean, these were brutal people, and they were a brutal kingdom. Well, anyway, they were a great enemy of uh, the Israelites. And here you go. God speaks to Jonah and says, okay, Jonah. Jonah must have been on the edge of his seat. I'm going back to the palace. I'm going to be a popular prophet. Here he goes, Jonah. I want you to go that way. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And you know the story. He actually went the other way. And as he went the other way out of God's will, watch this, he kept going down. He went down in geography. And then it was like all the Christians say, wow, an open door. There just happens to be a ship here. And I have the money in my pocket. It's so easy to go the other way, folks. Watch when you say and pray for open doors because the enemy of our souls 
opens doors. He makes it attractive. He makes it easy. Oftentimes, the way that God wants us to go is the difficult way. And this would have clearly been very difficult. I mean, what would you have done? This is a country or a city in which you had to walk, or it would take you three days to walk across. This was a big city, Nineveh, uh, according to the extra biblical accounts. And actually, we're going to see something here in the Bible, too, that uh, declares that. But And it was wicked, and it was difficult. I mean, what would you have done if you were Jonah the prophet, used to prophesying in the courts of the king, but now you're going to have to go to the impenetrable walls, somehow get through and get in there, and what are you going to do? And it's going to be difficult and wicked and hard. And so he doesn't do it. And we said this, uh, quoting Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great pastor, it's always that way when you run away from the Lord. You never get to where you're going, and you always pay your own fare. On the other hand, when you're going the Lord's way, you always get to where you're going, and he pays the fare. It's so perfect. So you know the story. The people on the ship are like, what's going on here? I mean, we serve God's but why don't you call on your God? And is who, who's the one causing the trouble here? And they cast lots, and it comes up to, uh, to Jonah, and they know it's him. And eventually then, you, you know the story, they throw him into the sea, and he falls into the belly of a great fish. But instead of concentrating on whether or not it's possible that God could preserve somebody in a fish three days and three nights, forget that. Don't look at the fish. If you don't believe God could preserve somebody in the belly of a whale three days, three nights, how can you go out to the Rocky Mountains and go, God did that? There's, I mean, come on. He, can, he created the world out of nothing, folks. He can put somebody in the belly of a whale and spit them out three days later. But what you really should be concentrating is not the miracle of the fish and whether he survived in the fish. What I think we should concentrate on is the miracle that happened in Jonah's heart. Don't look at the fish, look at Jonah, because see, God's after the man or the woman of God. He's after our hearts. And here, uh, Jonah wanted to do his own thing. He wanted to run away from the will of God, and God was so merciful and gracious to go after him. The just thing probably would have been to, wait a minute, he's not listening to me? Okay, well, the just thing is I might not go after him. But the Lord went after him. And it says that he even prepared the fish. He created this storm that shook the boat. He prepared uh, the lots to come upon Jonah. He prepared the little fish. From the time the little fish was a little guppy, the Lord knew that he was going to be the one to take up Jonah. Isn't that amazing? God prepared all those things. And what is it? Isn't it beautiful when we get to the place where we can thank God that he sent the whale for us? and swallowed us up and can get, it, get us to the place where we're still and we listen and we actually think on the things that he's doing and understand that he loves us enough to interrupt what we're doing so that we can get back into his will. Isn't that beautiful? Where, how can we get to the place? So if you want to, if you have something very difficult going on in your life, here, Raise your hand if you have something difficult going on in your life. I have something difficult going on in my life right now, okay? So I'm with you. When you get to that place, and whatever the situation is, I don't know what it is, can you get to the place where you thank the Lord for the situation because he's interrupting you to put you somewhere for deliverance and glory, his glory, and conformance, most important, to the image of his son who was betrayed and prayed. Listen, listen, I can hardly say it. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Oh, now that's love. That's mercy. That's grace. And so we get to that place and or we can, or Jonah got to that place. And then we saw in chapter two that he began to pray to the Lord from the fish of the belly. He cried out to the Lord because of his affliction. That was the first and great thing to do. There's no other indication until then that, the, that Jonah, in this case, ever prayed to the Lord. He heard from the Lord and he ran. 
And it was easy. And he said, wow, maybe the Lord is in this thing. <laughs> when he knew darn well it was going the other way. But he cried out first. He prayed. He said, I went all the way down to Sheol, the place of the dead. Some people believe he actually died. Others believe it just felt like it. Whatever. You'd be a Berean there. But the floods surrounded him. Your billows and your waves passed over me. And all of this language is taken from the Psalms which means Jonah was praying to God the scriptures. He was a man of the word. He wasn't just a prophet. He was a man of God's word. He knew the Psalms. This whole chapter is like that. And you keep going, and he says, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. You catch that? That means he used to look at the holy temple. He had looked at the holy temple. He knew the holy temple was important, and he said, because of what, You've done, Lord. I'm getting to that place where, wow, I'm so thankful that you put me in this whale. Or it wasn't a whale, but anyway, a great fish. I'm glad you put me in this great fish. I'm going to look again to your holy temple. But folks, yes, he probably was thinking about the temple that's down in southern Israel. But what's in the temple? It's the presence of the Lord. Turn over to... uh, the most famous psalm in the world, maybe. Probably is. The most famous psalm. Psalm 23. I just want you to see something with your own eyes here. Maybe you'd forgotten this. The Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Here it comes. Watch this. The psalmist must have felt just like Jonah did. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you told me a whole bunch of platitudes and I put them up on my uh, refrigerator and I remembered them? No. For you are with me. His presence settled his heart. It brought him out of fear in Psalm 23. Here, it brought him uh, as, as the Lord cared enough about him to interrupt his plans and bring him back into the will of God. Watch this. Jonah says, I know what I need. And it's not religious stuff. It's your presence. When I'm in your presence, Lord, oh, there's beauty, there's warmth, there's a lack of fear, there's courage, there's uh, uh, peace. And that's where I need to be. I'll look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul, the deep clothes around me. Apparently this great fish had been eating seaweed because it was wrapped around the guy's head. And I went down to the moorings of the mountains. That's a way to just say I was dead, basically. And the earth with its bars closed. He was helpless. He had no hope. He had nothing, just like the people of Nineveh. That's what I want you to see. God was teaching him there's no hope without him. And he needed to learn that lesson before he went and ministered to him. Isn't that beautiful? So the Lord called him to it. And the Lord, in his sovereignty, knew he was going to walk away. The Lord knew he was going to take, go after him and bring him the other way through this great fish and all that feeling of death and hopelessness like at the rock in Philly you see, or wherever you go. And he needed to feel that so that he would be an amazing, effective minister. Isn't that wonderful? What are you going through? See, here's what are you going through. Listen, one of the purposes of what you're going through, I'm convinced, I know, because I read the Bible and so do you, is so that you can minister in that way to others. It's no fun going through it. No one's saying that. But God can use it and redeem it, whatever it is. Here he put him through it, and it was really rough, and it was really tough. He said, the earth with its bars closed behind me. I have no hope. You've brought my life up, but you've brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted, when I finally got to the place where I just couldn't do it in my own strength anymore, when I couldn't do it by myself within me, I remembered you, Lord, the Lord. And that's it. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Watch this. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Whoo. I mean, 
what was the idol that Jonah was fighting? Maybe it was ministry. Wow, Lord, I'm so great at ministry. Every time you send me with a great message to the kings, I can do it. In fact, I'm pretty good at it. I can navigate these evil kings and I can tell them some good stuff. But man, what they, or I can tell them what you tell me. But when I do it, wow, it's successful and it's wonderful. And everything's been great in my ministry. This is wonderful. Amazing. I love this ministry thing. In fact, I'm pretty good at this. Boy, there's a real temptation, folks, in ministry to talk like that to yourself. And here, the, the, the Lord, through the Jonah, says those who regard these worthless idols, including the idol of self or people-pleasing or ministry or anything, anyone who regards worthless idols forsakes their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you. Watch what he did. I sacrifice with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. He began to be a person who would sacrifice. And boy, he's moving in the right direction now, isn't he? So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land, which is really amazing because you can see the seeds of repentance happening inside, watch, inside the belly of the fish. And inside the belly of the fish, I don't think he probably knew that the fish was moving or swimming. And as he starts to repent and starts to own what he's done and how he's owned uh, walking away from the Lord, watch, the fish starts moving from the middle of the Mediterranean Sea to dry land, going towards Nineveh, and God spits him out right there. In other words, the Lord was moving even when he didn't know it, when he was just doing what the Lord asked him to do. The Lord always responds to repentance and faith. Always. Watch. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You should really underline that. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. See, here's why. In this world, you get one chance mostly. Work in a corporation and mess up a deal or mess up a court case or mess up something at business or mess up something at your job. Do it once. Watch what happens. It comes down on you, man. Or maybe you mess up something in your, in your extracurriculars or with your friends. There's no second chances a lot of times in this world. But watch this. The Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Wouldn't you say it would have been a just thing for God to say, hey, Jonah, man, you failed the test and you really failed it miserably. And I had to go put you in a whale and it took a lot of effort. Not that it took the Lord effort, but you get what I'm saying. And it, it was really a kind of a mess. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to park you for a while. Here's what the Lord did. The Lord says, okay, I'm going to come to you now a second time. And if you study it through the Old Testament, some of the greats of the Old Testament were uh, given second chances. For instance, do you remember when Abraham was called out of the Ur of the Chaldeans? You, you know, right? He gets to a place called Haran. He's not quite where he's supposed to be. And what does Abraham do? He stops and he doesn't go where the Lord called him to go. Remember that? And the Lord came to him and said, I need you to go on a little farther. <laughs> right? And Moses had hiccups. I mean, Moses is in the courts of the pharaohs and, uh, you know, he gets to a place where he commits murder, man. And the Lord takes him out on the back of the desert before, and all of that happens before Moses becomes the leader. In other words, there's more than second chances with these guys. And I mean, just study through the life of Peter. I mean, when you, I really think the way in which we view what Peter did during the trials of Jesus is a litmus test for our Christianity, how we think and feel about what the Lord feels for us. Because you see, when I originally start reading through the story of Peter and he starts denying Jesus in the courtyard there, you're like, what an idiot. How could he, I mean, seriously, how could he, he just told him a few hours ago, I'll die. I mean, and then there's this one passage in one of the gospels. You remember this? When Jesus is walking back through the courtyard and it says their eyes met. Remember that? Remember that? I think the way in which you think Jesus looked at him tells a lot about your Christianity. You know how I used to think Jesus looked at him? Like, come on, man. You really did that to me. I'm the boss here, and you did that. But that's not the way Jesus looked at him at all. 
Jesus looked at him like, hey, man, I love you. And I'm going to, I know it was in his eyes, and we're going to get together here again, and I'm going to restore you, and you're going to do great things. However that was said through his eyes, I just think that mo, uh, 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 the Lord looked at Peter with the eyes of grace. He needed second chances and third chances, didn't he? And here we see that the Lord is the Lord of second chances. By justice, probably you would have said, if you had to declare uh, guilty or not guilty to Jonah, you'd just say, man, Jonah, you're guilty. You screwed up. No more. But the Lord comes to him a second time. And he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now watch. He comes to him with the same message. He comes to him the same commission, the same message as before. God's going to get it done. You see it? God's going to get it done. But one thing that the Lord tags on this, watch. Look over in verse or chapter 1. Here's what he says first. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Watch what he does here. So merciful, so gracious. Hey, hey, Jonah. Just get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and here, here, Jonah, Jonah, you're going to just preach to it the message that I tell you. In other words, I'm going to help you out. I know you don't know what to do. Uh, you're going to walk up there. It's going to take a long time. It's going to be very tiring. But, but you know what? Don't you think this? I, I just look at the way this little fellowship started. It's similar in, in ways to this. I had no idea. Zero. Take a negative and go that way on the scale of how to do something, and that would be zero or negative. I, I had no idea. And the Lord just showed us that we were to start a Sunday fellowship. Well, Lord, how would we start a f Sunday fellowship? And, you know, if I was beholden to a date to launch, I hate that word, by the way, but oh well, launch a, a Sunday service, uh, well, then I'd have been sorely disappointed because the between the time that the Lord told us to have Sunday service and the time that we started Sunday service was 2.5 years. 2.5 years because I live in Pleasant Hills, and I hope some of the politicians from Pleasant Hills are watching who are my friends, and I love them dearly. I kept marching into the Pleasant Hills Variance Committee or Variance building office saying, we want this property. And they'd say, oh, sorry, it's not coded for worship. And I'm like, well, what's coded for worship? Is there anything around? Yeah, plenty of things. What? The existing churches only had a zoning code for worship, which, by the way, is that constitutional? I'm not sure. But anyway, <clears throat> and I, I love you guys. But anyway, so it took us two and a half years. And then John Serpa and I and some others were over at a uh, a meeting. I, I didn't know what, uh, over at a worship service on a Sunday night over at the Elizabeth Grand Theater. I'd never even been to the Elizabeth Grand Theater. And he said, you should ask the owner right there whether you can have church service here. And I'm like, okay, I'll ask him. Two and a half years came down to a five-second conversation. I don't think I'm exaggerating. It was no more than 10 seconds with the owner. Hey, can we have Sunday service? Here, my name's Tim. Okay, my name's Ken. Can we have Sunday services here on Sunday morning? He goes, Sure, call me Monday, we'll get it done. That's how long it took, that long. Then we had Sunday services. Now you're having Sunday services in the theater and you're packing it in every day and packing it out every day and the Sunday school's down the street in a school shop and, or, uh, excuse me, a shopping area. And you know, you're like, wow, really Lord? Well, what do we do? Should we have a permanent building? Oh, okay. Well, then somebody purchases this building and says, well, we'll just lease it back to you. I mean, here's what I'm trying to tell you. And you know the story and I'm not trying to bore you, but here's what I'm trying to tell you. The Lord didn't show me I'd be standing here with you people with beige things and these and this. There was none of this in here. None of it. But you, here's what you did. You just did the next step. And it's like, you know, Corey Tenboom and her father, you know, when she was little, they would go on the trains. She always wanted to take the ticket right out when they got out on the street. And the dad would say, no, Corey. And she said, well, dad, when can I have the ticket? And he said, when you need it, I'll give it to you. Right? 
And she just had to trust her father that he was going to do the right thing. And he, she did. And, and that's what the Lord's doing right here. He's developing this man who was willfully disobedient, who's now coming back to a place where he owns his sin, his uh, unrepentance, his willful heart, his uh, uh, standing up against the will of God. And, and the Lord's just saying, I just want you to just take little steps of faith. Here's what I want you to do. I just want you to go now, and, I, and I'll do this. I'll give you the words to say, but go. And he does. He gets up this time, and he goes to Nineveh, and that's how the Lord does it. He just gives you a little at a time. I know you love to be planners, and so should I. I should be more of a planner. And yet I see in the Bible here, too, as we plan, wonderful plan, but when the Lord is just asking you to step out in faith, you don't have to know the whole story, right? If he's just calling you to start a Sunday service, you, then you just say, well, then, Lord, I'm just going to take the steps. I'm going to do my best. But, Lord, show me how to do the Sunday service because I have no idea. I don't know who's going to play guitar. I don't, I don't, if I had done that, I would have been in a tough spot. I thought about all of that, but what I just did, and we just did, and it's not just me. There was tons of people, John Kennedy and other people around here doing it too. We were all doing it together, and Jonah's doing that. So he goes, and it's beautiful because the Lord says, well, I'll tell you what to say this time. Come on, I'll tell you. I'm going to help you out. The mercy and grace of God. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now look. Nineveh was still an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. You see that? On the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, watch this. The Lord must have told him this, folks. Do you know that? The Lord must have told him to say this. He must have told him to say this. Can you believe it? This isn't the, this isn't the evangelical scripture that I would have told Jonah to tell the Ninevites, right? The wages of sin is death. <laughs> I'd have been saying something about the judgment of God and how God's going to get him. And he does sort of say that, but it's very quick. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Maybe I should take this to heart because it's a short word that's blessed by God. <laughs> it's simple. It's simple. But here's the point. It's simple, but I want you to know something. It was given to him by God. That's huge. He knew exactly what to say. Why? Because God told him to. And God said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then you go on and it says this. So the people of Nineveh believed God. What? Here's my preaching legal mind right here. But there weren't a lot of apologetics here, Lord. There wasn't a lot of complexity. You weren't very clever there. You didn't give them the cute story, the great funny thing that they would laugh at. None of that. You just told them what you wanted them to say. And here's the thing. It says that the people of Nineveh believed the preacher or the prophet. That's not what it says. What's the role of the preacher or the prophet? Not that they would love the preacher or the prophet, but that they would believe God. What are we all trying to do here? Why do we come here on a Wednesday night? Why do we come here on a Sunday? We want to worship the Lord. Oh, man, do we want to worship the Lord and pour out our heart to the Lord? That's one thing we want to do. But in our teaching and our preaching, what is the pastor trying to do? The pastor is trying to, one thing he's trying to do, just one. There's many aspects. He's trying to teach you, like school teaching, teach you the word. That's a good thing that he does. Uh, but he's also trying through the word to equip people for their ministry. That's another thing that the pastor's trying to do or helping you do. That's what he's trying to help you do. He's trying to teach you the word of God. He's trying to edify you for the ministry. And there's some other things that he's trying to do. But you know what? If we left here and we didn't feel like we had a fuller or greater devotion to God himself, then what are we doing? Is it about the stories and propping the person who's standing back here up? No. 
Is it about bringing attention here? Uh-uh. It's about getting people to draw closer to the Lord and to believe him, because here's why. <laughs> we all know, and I'm charged with this, I think about this thing. When you go out that door, there are going to be things that happen that aren't exactly, in the world's eyes, great circumstances. There's going to be tense marriages. There's going to be tense work relationships with bosses. There's going to be financial pressure. There's going to be friends and family who say things against you that are not true. There's going to be people, and, and, and you're going to be like, what? And, and, and here's the thing. The Lord, in the middle of those things, whatever they are, watch this. He wants you to believe him in all of those circumstances. Watch. So we'll continue in the middle of the difficult circumstances, pointing people to Jesus so that more people will come into the family of God before he comes back in judgment. That's it. I mean, it is. And so what's the role of the person that's back here? It's not for you to like me. It's for you to believe God in the tough times, in the hard times, in the bad times, in the good times, in the profitable times, in the not-so-profitable times, in the prosperous times. It's to believe God so that the people who are in the dark and hurting place can see a person who's been through it just like them and are still standing to give the gospel. Wow, it's powerful. So here's what... Jonah does. He believes God. And then he proclaims a fast. And he puts on sackcloth. What would that be? That would be to like mourn. He's understanding that what he's doing when he's walking away from the Lord is a sin. And what is what are we seeing here? Well, we don't read the word repentance, but we're seeing repentance in action. What is repentance? It's a changing of the mind and agreeing with God. We're just basically saying, God, you're right. Jonah here is saying, God, you're right. I was outside of your will. I know you've called me as a prophet. I know I've been successful in the past, but it seems to me, Lord, and I agree with you, that I'm becoming a person who is putting me and my pleasure and my fame and my good above your glory, and I don't want to do that anymore. Lord, you're right, so here's what I'm going to do. As the word of God comes to me, I'm going to believe God's word. Watch this. This is repentance. I'm going to believe God's word, and I'm going to stay in a life of repentance. I'm going to be a person who fasts and has sackcloth. Well, what does that mean for us? Instead of mourning, we should be people who uh, mourning not instead of mourning, but now what do we do? We mourn over our sin. We stay humble. We become teachable. We have tender hearts in our marriages. Man, if you ain't married, I got to tell you, you talk about a place <laughs> where God can humble you or bring you like face to face with like the mundane things of living the gospel. And I'm just saying, I mean, here you are a person that's done things your way for 25 years, 35 years, 45 years, whatever age you are, you've done them yours and finally, you know, whatever the Lord brings. And, and then here you are and you get, and you know, the first day and you're like, what in the world are you leaving all the caps on and you don't put the toilet seat down and you put the toilet paper up the wrong way. What are you, what are you doing? And the little irritations of life. And it's just, I mean, that's the place. It's a place where the Lord does it, right? And, and, and then any place it can be. Keeping teachable, humble hearts. I mean, I've been a lawyer since 1993. If I was in the flesh, you know what I could say? I could, Man, don't tell me how to do that. I know how to do it. I got through law school. You didn't. You know, I could have an attitude like that. And yet, am I to remain teachable and humble here in my job and dependent upon the Lord? Yes, because he's the one that's given me the opportunities to go and do those sorts of things. And it's only because of him. It's not me. He gave me the opportunities. And it's the same thing for you or wherever you go. The Lord says things like this. Don't be a gossip. Don't stir up dissension. Work hard day and night to deliver the gospel. I'm just giving you some of his commands. And so when you are called to do those things, 
God says he gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. And here, a life of repentance means believing the word of God, then keeping a humble heart, mourning over your own sin, having a real right ask, or a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A real right view of who you are and how capable you are without the Lord in your life, walking not according to the spirit, how you could get off the rails and go the other way. And that's keeping a humble spirit. It's like somebody, you know, one of you telling me, not that I'm anybody, you know, you need to do this or do that with your life. Well, who are you, man? I'm the pastor. I could say stuff like that. And yet, would that be right? No, it wouldn't be right. I need to live in a state of dependence and humility and repentance. I'm no better than anybody here or anyone here. I just have a different role than you folks do. That's all. So what else happens? You're seeing repentance. The word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth and uh, uh, sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the kings and the nobles. So the people of Nineveh are showing us here, I guess I talked about Jonah, but <laughs> it's been a long week. Jonah is uh, uh, repenting, but so here are the people of Nineveh, and they do it through the preaching of the word of God. They do it through humble hearts. They do it now, and the, the king, he arose, he does this, and he caused it to be proclaimed, verse 7, and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Folks, if you are repentant, if you are a repentant person, whether it's Jonah himself or the Ninevites, you'll believe the word of God. You'll be in a humble state. But I want you to see something. There will be action. I get in trouble when I preach on this, and here's why. People say, man, you're a legalist. What do you mean I'm a legalist? The grace of God is a transforming grace, and repentance, in repentance, there's action. When, a per when the Lord speaks to you and says, you know, really, you shouldn't be looking at that. You're married. You don't just keep looking at it and say, oh, the Lord will forgive me. No, you stay in repentance. You say, Lord, you're right. I was wrong about that. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn the other way and I'm going to go and crash my computer and I'm not going to look at it anymore. I'm going to crush it. I'll get rid of my phone. Lord, your uh, word to me and my wife mean more to me than looking at that. There's action. There has to be action. You're not a very, uh, 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 you know, the Lord says, I'm asking you to be forgiving and to ask for forgiveness. You say, well, Lord, my husband or my wife, he's a jerk. You don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. Well, that's not what the Lord calls us to. In the marriage, the Lord says, I want you to, to sh uh, shout the gospel to the world. And one way is you're going to be a forgiving people. You're going to ask for forgiveness. You're going to grant forgiveness. You're going to have the mind of Christ. And uh, you're going to live out tenderly, communicating. And you're going to be, and, and when you mess up, you're going to ask for forgiveness. You, there must be action in repentance, or it's not really repentance. And then God saw their works, verse 10, well, excuse me, verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God, then God, he saw... He saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said and he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Now I want to read you one more thing uh, from uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine, Steve Cornell. He's a pastor in the middle of this state and he talks about, and I've said this five times here at the fellowship and I want you to get this. How can you tell if you, pointing the finger at me, you, we, are really repentant? How can I tell if I'm a really repentant person? Say I've offended my wife, and I say, well, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? I'm wrong. I repent. How can I tell 
if I'm really repentant. Here, I'm going to read you seven signs of repentance from my friend Steve Cornell, or at least my acquaintance, not really my friend. Accept full responsibility for your actions. Instead of saying, well, since you think I've done something wrong, or if, you have done, if I've done anything to offend you, when you say if I've done anything to offend you, you're not repentant. You're basically saying you got it wrong, you're mad, but you got it wrong. Here's what you do, you just own it. You say, yes, it was mine. You accept accountability from others. When people won't accept accountability from others, they're not repentant. They do not continue in the behavior or anything associated with it. That's the third uh, uh, mark of true repentance. You, you catching this? Watch this. You don't have a defensive attitude about being wrong. What do you, what do you mean I was a smart aleck at dinner tonight? I wasn't a smart aleck. I'm, I'm never a smart aleck, which is a total lie, but, uh, right? How about this one? Does not have a light attitude toward the hurtful behavior. You ever done something wrong with your friend or your spouse or whatever, and instantly you know it? Okay, I've done it. And then you start joking with her or him because you know you've done something wrong. That's what he's talking. Don't have a light attitude towards it. That's another mark of repentance. You don't resent doubts about sincerity or the need to demonstrate sincerity especially for repeated offenses. What do you mean? Well, let's say I hurt my wife uh, and, and, and then I ask for repentance and then you know how we are. About an hour later, I come in and say, are you still mad at me? And she says, yeah, I'm still mad at you. You know what a repentant person says? You take as much time as you need. Because I was but here's what I say often. What do you mean you're still mad at me? I just said I was sorry. Didn't I say I was sorry? Okay, that's not a repentant person, folks. A repentant person says, hey, you take as much time as you need, and you're still right. If you tell me tomorrow, you'll still be right. If you tell me in three months, you'll still be right. I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And last, you make restitution if necessary. That's his, his line. See, Repentance is not for the faint of heart, is it? But here's the thing. Repentance and asking for forgiveness, it's difficult for me. i just be honest with you. But it just shows me how much I need the Lord. I can't do it without the Lord. I can't meet the standards that the Lord puts up there without the Lord in my life. Here, you see an amazing, you see an amazing uh, uh, work of the Spirit in this guy's life and, uh, uh, he, and then these people's lives up there in Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh believe God. The whole people of Nineveh, they just believe God. And wow, God saw their works and he repented from their evil way or he turned from their evil or he relented from the disaster that he had said we would bring upon him. Don't, don't get all flustered and bothered by that. God acted in total, perfect harmony with his word. Remember, he said back here, uh, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Uh, you, you remember that. Uh, he, he said this before, God has. He said it in uh, Jeremiah 18, um, uh, verses 7 through 8. Uh, and Jonah's preaching here was like all warnings of judgment. It was an invitation to repent. And watch this. When they did repent, the evil nation of Nineveh was no more. You get it? You understand what I mean? They repented. And so what a beautiful picture here. God responds to repentance true repentance, agreeing with God, owning what you are, agreeing with him who you are, agreeing with him that you totally need him. By the way, they would then fall back out of <laughs> repentance. And we're going to study in the book of Nahum. I don't know who's going to teach that. I can't, don't know who's on the schedule for that. But God then judges Nineveh. And it's recorded in the book of Nahum. But because of their repentance here, he delayed it 
about 150 years. So here's what I want to ask you. What is it that the Lord's asking you (laughs) to do? Is there something that the Lord's asked you to do and you've run the other way? Have you been willfully disobedient? Like maybe in your marriage, have you been willfully disobedient? Uh, Maybe with your friends, have you been willfully disobedient? Maybe in your work, maybe uh, have you been willfully disobedient? I don't know, but the Lord in many places can talk to you and ask you to do something or show you something in your life that you either need to get rid of or add to. And I'm wondering, has the Lord showed you a ministry or something? I don't know what it is. And you've said no to him. Maybe not no, but you've run the other way. Well, what is it that God responds to? Yeah, love. But God loves it when we own it. And we just say, Lord, you're so right. I want to get to that place where I want to thank you for whales and difficult circumstances. Wow, you shook me up like the sea so that I would move and walk towards you. And now, Lord, you're putting on my path. Lord, here's what I want to do. I want to say yes. Watch. I want, you, I want to say yes to whatever you have for me. Whatever you have for me. Lord, I could be a stutterer. Afraid to speak to people. My whole life, Lord, this man said. Didn't like talking to people. Why? Because I felt bad about myself. And at 40 years old, the Lord comes. And he agrees with God about him being a sinner. And the Lord doesn't take away the stuttering necessarily. Interesting. But the man becomes so comfortable and in the love of God that he, be, he starts a ministry where he's constantly reaching out and talking to people, constantly. The Lord can turn around the things that we think bad about ourselves or are not comfortable with and turn it around and use it for his glory. 169,000 Bibles in one year, one man. Don't say you're too busy. 55 hours of work a week. Amazing. Oh, and by the way, not one time during the year asking anybody for a penny. His budget was what? 209,000 per year. And the Lord just kept bringing donations unsolicited. Amazing. A modern day George Mueller. Well, anyway, let's pray and let's say this. Um, Let's do this. Let's think about something in our life that you're saying no to or haven't said yes to, whatever you want to say. Maybe there's something that you're running the other way. Maybe you're having trouble in your marriage. Maybe you're having uh, things go on in your work and you've been saying no. You've been running the other way. Here's what we want to do. Say yes tonight to the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come here together as brothers and sisters and we lift up this night and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts Lord, that you would do a mighty work here, that you would give us the strength and resource to go to the hardest places, the most difficult places to go and to love on people and to share your word, a simple message of the gospel that comes from you and not from us, not our cleverness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do this so that Many would uh, be impacted for your kingdom through us, Lord, before you come back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.